As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests, so please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognised the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Weirdly, when I started 
researching the Paycar ambush, I'd already stumbled upon Lionel Charles Thomas previously and had actually set aside a folder to follow up. And I was like, hang on, I know that name. Holy crap, it's that guy. So then I started digging into that guy and that guy didn't disappoint. I mean, he was evil, I think is probably not too strong a word to use. I I tend not to use that word, but in this case, you know, I'm happy to make the exception. We're back with Michael Adams from the Forgotten Australian podcast, who I'm sure you'll remember left us at the end of the last episode of Australian True Crime with the name of a crook he believed could be the key to solving an 80-year cold case. That name was Lionel Charles Thomas, but don't get too used to it because if there was one thing this guy loved, it was changing his name. You'll have to keep your wits about you because over the course of this episode, as he lies, cheats, murders, but also romances his way around Australia and New Guinea, Lionel will go by no less than three more names. He's definitely a colourful character. It's easy to understand how Michael Adams became so intrigued by him when he popped up in his research. He was born in 1905 in Victoria. His father had the name of Thomas Thomas. He was a veteran railway worker. Thomas had a daughter first, Florence. He and his wife had Lionel in 1905. In 1925, Florence married a chap called Fred Stevens. So Lionel, Fred, his brother-in-law, and Florence, his sister, were a trio of burglars in Melbourne at the sort of start of the Depression. From sort of about September 1930, for about six months in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, there were just these string of burglaries. They hit house after house. In some cases, they hit like a shop. One shop, they hit three times. They really made Melbourne's cops look like flatfoots. Finally, the police finally worked out who it was. They arrested Lionel and they arrested his sister Florence. But Fred had been walking home and had seen the cop cars out the front or cars he recognised as belonging to the police and he'd legged it. So Lionel and his sister, I mean, it made for a great headlo- you know, headline in you know, the Argus and the Age, you know, siblings arrested for burglary, you know, brother-sister team. They were arrested, charged, and um, they were going to be committed to trial. And Fred was in the wind, and he probably felt like a bit of a cad given you know, his wife was in stir and he was out free. So he turned himself in, and he seemed to have done a deal with the cops. So the charges were dropped against Florence, and Fred and Lionel both pleaded guilty. It seemed like a deal had been done. So he and his brother-in-law both got sentenced to about three and a half years in Pentridge. They were both released in June and and July in 1934. So Lionel, he hooked up with a woman called Muriel Croft. Now, Muriel's husband, Thomas Croft, had not so long ago been convicted of a sex offence against a minor and had been given a suspended sentence. So he was a bit of a creep, but because it was a suspended sentence, he didn't have a criminal record like Lionel did, having just come out of Pentridge for you know doing three years for a string of burglaries. So Muriel suggested to Lionel, hey, why don't you become Thomas Croft? So for the next little while, that's how we'll, we will refer to him sometimes as Thomas Croft. I'm assuming he could pass himself off because, you know, she could supply papers that, you know, proved his identity as Thomas Croft. So we'll just press pause on Thomas Croft at this point. 
on the 1st of October 1934, so we're talking three months after he got out of jail, at Carnegie Station, a station master named Tom Norwood was doing the night shift when someone came up to his office window as he was counting money that he was going to put onto a pay train bound for Melbourne, was counting money. It was 137 pounds, I think, all up. This guy stuck a gun at him and said, give me the money. Now, Tom Norwood, the station master, was behind a security grill, and he made the mistake of turning and running, trying to get out of sight, and this assailant shot him twice in the back. People at the station had heard the shots. They called uh, for assistance. Some porters ran across. One man was seen running from the scene. He was tall, between about 25 and 35, dark-haired. So the police converged on the scene. The station master, Tom Norwood, bled out. He died there. Uh, he, the bullets you know, pierced both of his lungs and grazed his heart. Uh, he had a wife and, and a small child. I mean, this guy was from a family upcountry Victoria. Their young daughter had died when Tom was about seven, and then his older brother had died at Gallipoli. So the Norwood family had known a fair bit of tragedy, and now their son Tom had just been gunned down and the money was out of reach. The guy who'd done the shooting had tried to peel back the grill, the security grill, and hadn't been able to get it. So this guy had died for nothing. It was a big manhunt, lots of investigations. They had witnesses who said they'd be able to identify the assailant, but they kind of hit a dead end pretty quickly. Now we cut to Sydney, five weeks later, November 1934. It's the Depression. We're on Oxford Street, Darlinghurst, and two men who work for Wynn's Department Store, which has a shop front on Oxford Street, but also a larger shop set back on Liverpool Street, which is connected by a laneway with steps. These two guys are walking along one handle each, carrying a bag of money. And as they enter the laneway, two men run up behind them, rub pepper into their eyes, grab the bag and run along the laneway, down the steps to a waiting car. Now, witnesses said that there'd been two girls, young women, staking the place out, and one of them gave a signal to these men as these guys approached. Now, the two men with a pepper in their eyes ran after these robbers and tried to stop them. One of them actually grabbed onto the back of the bumper bar of the car. One of the robbers leaned out, said, let go. The bloke didn't, so he shot him. Uh, He shot him in the groin. The guy fell down. The car roared off. It was a stolen car, which was recovered later. There were plenty of witnesses, but they gave varying descriptions. The guy survived, the guy who was shot in the groin. But, you know, that was more good luck than anything else. But, you know, whoever was caught for this, if they were convicted, they'd face attempted murder. And that was a capital offence. You'd get a death sentence for it. It might be commuted, but you would get a death sentence for it. So we cut now again to August 1935, about half a mile from where the the first pepper robbery was, a guy is walking with a man who's about to buy two Ford motor vehicles. They've just gone to the bank and they've got out about 700 pounds, which is the money to be used in in the purchase. And as they're walking along, a man jumps up from behind a car and throws pepper into the eyes of the man who's going to buy the car. He's wearing glasses, however, so the pepper doesn't get right into his eyes. The assailant grabs the bag of money and legs it. And again, people have said that they've seen two women casing this area previously. The victim chases after the man. 
The man turns and punches him in the face, knocks out three of his teeth, breaks his glasses. The guy still gives chase, but the assailant gets away. The police are very, very interested in the other man who was there. He was the one who'd organized this deal, who'd accompanied this man to the bank, who'd actually specified that particular bank and specified park in this particular lane. And also this guy hadn't been hit with a pepper, but he'd he'd pretty much handed the bag to the assailant. Under pressure, this guy cracked and said, yep, I set him up. I was involved. His name was O'Connell. We're going to come back to him. George O'Connell. So the cops quickly had an idea that the man they were after was Lionel Charles Thomas, aka Thomas Croft, who by this stage was living in Sydney with his fake wife, Muriel Croft, whose real husband's name he'd taken. And they put out a warrant for his arrest, and a couple of weeks later, a police sergeant saw him on the street, said, stick him up, and Lionel kind of reached for his pocket and then thought better of it and was arrested, and they found him with a fully loaded pistol. He had an unlicensed gun. The two men were committed to stand trial. Long story short, they were convicted. So our man Lionel Thomas Croft is uh, found guilty. He's sentenced to, I think, four and a half years all told because he's also sentenced for that unlicensed pistol. I mean, the judge says, you know, why did you have it? He said, oh, you know, it just is a bluff. He's like, well, why are you bluffing anyone with a loaded pistol? The judge said men who carry loaded pistols tend to use them in moments of panic. I mean, any Melbourne detective hearing that might have thought about the Carnegie case and thought, hmm, interesting, this guy was down here at that point. Remember that they they were convicting him of the pepper robbery where a gun hadn't been used. But, you know, eight months before that, there'd been another pepper robbery where the guy had been shot in the groin. Well, they now put him on trial for that as well. So now Lionel was, you know, already in jail for four and a half years, but he was facing trial for the attempted murder of this man in that first pepper robbery. So at the time, the newspaper said, you know, there were numerous witnesses. This time, the police actually produced a police constable who'd been supposedly on holidays in Sydney and had witnessed that first pepper robbery and the shooting. And he identified Lionel Charles Thomas, aka Thomas Croft. That's pretty hard to beat, but Lionel could beat it. He actually had a witness from his next-door neighbour in Castlemaine, Castlemaine in Victoria, who gave evidence to say that Lionel had been at his parents' home at that time in Melbourne. So there's no way he could have committed this crime. So after the jury heard that, when they, went to, when they retired, it took them five minutes to find Lionel not guilty. Now, this witness for the defence was a prison warder in, at Pentridge, and he'd been, for a decade, he'd done that job. And prior to that, for six years, he'd been a policeman. So he had 16 years of law enforcement. Uh, he was, you know, equally as credible as the, as the prosecution witness, the policeman. Great alibi. Wow. Great alibi. Only problem being that later, the uh, Pentridge warder said that he'd been misled into providing this alibi. It seems to me that Lionel Charles Thomas had actually been down at his parents' place at Castle, Maine. And he'd either duped this guy into misremembering the dates or perhaps from jail had managed to threaten this guy or even bribe him into giving this false evidence. But it was enough to get Lionel Charles Thomas acquitted of attempted murder. But, I mean, he's still in Sydney. He's still in Sydney and he's in jail. So when he's released, he returns to Melbourne and he's living up at Swan Hill with his folks. 
At the same time, his former accomplice, O'Connell, is also released. And O'Connell goes to the police in Melbourne in 1939 and says, Lionel Charles Thomas, a.k.a. Thomas Croft, told me a bunch of things when we were knocking around together, and he basically confessed to the Carnegie Station Master murder. Now, this is a you know former crook who's just gotten out of jail. He's been jailed for doing a crime with Lionel Charles Thomas. You know, does this guy have a grudge? Is he trying to set him up? Did this confession actually happen? In any event, the police go up to Swan Hill and they interview Lionel Charles Thomas for seven hours. And he maintains he wasn't even in Melbourne in 1934, except briefly, which is clearly a lie because he'd been in Pentridge all of the first half of 1934. Um, he claims that, you know, he'd had problems with his wife, so he'd gone up to Sydney and then he'd come back briefly when they were going to reconcile and then he'd gone back to Sydney. I mean, clearly he needs to make sure that this alibi aligns with the other alibi that he gave in court that got him off the attempted murder charge. Anyway, he's not charged and that's the end of the investigation into the Carnegie murder at that point. Later that year, just before the war starts, his brother-in-law, Frederick Stevens, is arrested and goes to trial for burglaries. It's a hung jury and he's going to be tried again. At this point, Lionel Charles Thomas enlists in the army. Australia is now at war with Germany. He signs up and he's in basic training. Now, is he in basic training because he actually wants to defend Australia? Or is he thinking that if he gets into the army and is shipped off somewhere, he can possibly beat another charge? So he's actually in training in October when he's arrested for this burglary. And Fred, the charges against Fred Stevens, his brother-in-law, are dropped, not proceeded with. And Lionel Charles Thomas is convicted and does two years in Pentridge. So he's certainly out of military uniform, but he's back in prison uniform. So he gets out of Pentridge in uh, July the 7th. And five months to the day later, the Yandera pay car is blown off its tracks and three men are killed in New South Wales. So Lionel, as we know, has you know got potential form for shooting people during robberies, has been involved with railway robberies, is you know supposedly responsible for the murder of the Carnegie station master, has been interviewed about that, etc., etc., you look at his photo, and in terms of you know uh, the description of the men who were the suspects in the Andera Paycar, he fits it to a T. Exactly the right age, the right height. He had really heavy dark eyebrows, really dark hair, kind of you know tan complexion. You know he was bang on for for the actual suspects. Lionel is in the wind. He has spent. We're in you know at the end of 1941 now. His first prison sentence was in 1931 in Melbourne, and subsequently he spent eight of the past 10 years behind bars. So he's no criminal mastermind. He's not managed to stay sort of, you know, off the radar for very long. And yet now he's absolutely nowhere to be found. So we're going to cut again, and we're going to cut to 1945 when his former accomplice, O'Connell, again goes to the Melbourne police and says, Lionel Charles Thomas, a.k.a. Thomas Croft, is the man who killed the Carnegie Station Master. And this time there's another witness. And she's a nurse formerly from Sydney who lived with Lionel Charles Thomas in Sydney at the time. And she also tells the police that he spoke of committing this murder 
back in 1934. They both say that, you know, he confessed to them that he'd done this shooting, that the station master had been stupid and had gone for the phone. He'd had to plug this guy. He'd thrown away the gun. He'd said things like, you know, if I ever get caught in Melbourne, I'm done for, etc., etc. Now that they had two witnesses, they took the allegations a bit more seriously. They went up to Swan Hill. They interviewed Lionel there. He denied all knowledge. They said, look, you know, you're going to have to come on the train back to Russell Street with us. On the train, you know, it was a 14-hour trip, denied all knowledge, continued to deny everything in Russell Street. And then after 28 hours of interrogation, he suddenly confessed. He said, yep, I did it. The gun just went off. I didn't mean to shoot the man dead, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I did it. They now charged him with the murder of the station master in 1934. Do you reckon they hung him out the sixth floor of Russell yeah, Street the back floor, then? The fifth floor of Russell Street. I think this might be the very first time that such an allegation was made. Really? Yep. So he w- went to the committal hearing and his defence was that he had made the confession under torture. At this time, lots of allegations were made against police in various states for verbaling, you know, where they basically said, in court, this is what he said. He refused to sign the statement, et cetera, et cetera, stuff like that. You know, the police didn't have to actually interview people with independent witness. They didn't have, you know, the means to record interviews. So it was, you know, pretty much the police's word versus the crook's word in court or the suspect's word in court. And it would be up to a judge to decide if the police evidence was admissible and then up to a jury to decide who was telling the truth. And in this instance, Lionel Charles Thomas said that he'd been tortured. So the police had handcuffed his hands behind his back. They'd blindfolded him. They'd put a device on his head and tightened it and said, if you don't sign this statement we've typed, we're going to squeeze this until your head pops. The police objected to this, said it was absolute bullshit. No, that none of that happened. The judge uh, committed him to trial for the murder and he went to trial. This trial happened right as the Americans bombed Hiroshima. So, you know, we've got the start of the war with the Japanese happening on the same day as the Yandera, Paikar, and the trial began on the day Hiroshima was bombed. So the jury retires and the jury comes back. And in the case of Lionel Charles Thomas, charged with the murder of Station Master Tom Norwood at Carnegie Station in October 1934, they can't decide. It was 11 to 1. 11 guilty, one not guilty. So Lionel Charles Thomas went to trial again. And he went to trial in October. And the day he went to trial, POWs, thousands of POWs from Japanese prison camps are arriving in Melbourne to huge parades of people while Lionel Charles Thomas is going again before the court. The jury returns and in the case of against Lionel Charles Thomas for the murder of Tom Norwood at Carnegie Station on the 1st of October 1934. The verdict is, we can't decide. Lionel Charles Thomas goes back to trial in November and, spoiler alert, another hung jury. Lionel Charles Thomas is remanded for a fourth trial in the next sessions in December 1945 and the police drop the charges before it goes ahead. Lionel Charles Thomas walks. Lionel Charles Thomas leaves Melbourne. Given he's just publicly four times in each trial and in the committal hearing told the world the cops tortured him, 
You can imagine whether he was telling the truth about that or not. Best not to be in Melbourne anymore. No. So Lionel Charles Thomas resurfaces in Sydney. But now he's not Lionel Charles Thomas and he's not Thomas Croft. He's now Fred Stevens. So he's using his brother-in-law's name. And he hooks up with a woman named Pearl Jackson for a little while until she issues a warrant against him for stealing a ring. But the police can't find him in Sydney. That's because he's gone to the far-flung outpost of Blacktown in the Sydney's west. You know, in the mid-1940s, it was a village surrounded by farms. So it had two police. It was a small place. So Fred Stevens, Lionel Charles Thomas, throughout his career when he wasn't in jail or robbing people, was a baker. So he got work in, in Blacktown at Hebblewhite's Bakery. He presented himself quite well. You know, he'd lived a fairly tragic life. He'd had a wife and she'd given birth to twins, but they died. And then she'd given birth to two more sets of twins. They lived. Then she'd had triplets and they died and she'd died giving birth to them. So his his two twins were in an in a convent orphanage school and he himself had a twin brother and he was also really quite wealthy and he had a lovely brick home in Ringwood this is the story he was telling people in blacktown he was a sad man so of means so that was all bullshit that was all bullshit oh my all god what an awful story to tell people So our man Lionel is now going by two aliases. One, he's pinched from his brother-in-law, Fred Stevens, and the other, Thomas Croft, he's lifted from the husband of one of his partners in crime, Muriel Croft. Whatever he calls himself, he's about to be on the road to New Guinea, would you believe, after the break. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So this is the story he's putting around, and he meets this woman named Phyllis Page, and she works as a cleaner at Blacktown Council. Phyllis has had a hard life. She was born in 1900, so she's in her mid-40s. She was married to a nice chap named Norman. Uh, he was a sportsman and well-known around Blacktown. He was a, a butcher there, and he died when he was 35 of a stroke, uh, leaving her like right at the start of the Depression with two young children. So she raised these two children, Norman and Jean, raised them as a single mother, worked really hard, and in 1946, she meets... Lionel Charles Thomas, a.k.a. Thomas Croft, now going as Fred Stevens, this charming, poor widower who's actually quite wealthy and, you know, has big plans, and they hit it off. And within, you know, maybe a year, by mid-1947, he's moved into her house as a boarder, and she and he are discussing getting married. But before he came to live with, with Phyllis, he'd actually been staying with another chap in Blacktown, again as a boarder, and this guy's name was Arthur Graham. And, you know, while Arthur was out, our man helped himself to Arthur's papers. So he had a backup set of ID now and another potential identity that he could use. So this came into play in um, October of 1948 when he said to Phyllis, you know, who he wanted to marry, I've got to go to Rabal in New Guinea. I'm going to make some money there, work as a baker. And he enters the country under the name of Arthur Graham, this, you know, stolen identity. He comes back by around October of 1948 and is again living with Phyllis and her, you know, son Norman and daughter Jean. Jean is now married her husband also lives in the house, and Jean has just had a baby. So, you know, it's a one big happy family. You know, Phyllis is over the moon. You know, she had a hard time previously as a widow, but now she's got a man who she absolutely adores, Lionel slash Thomas slash Fred. Phyllis is really enjoying life. Our man it gets on really well with, you know, the son Norman, so much so that Norman shows him a photograph of his pen pal, and her name is Luba. And Luba lives in Brisbane. She's a, um, a sad girl. Her mother died when she was 15. She's only 18 now. Norman was up in Brisbane. He met her. They've kept in touch. And Lionel sees the photo and is quite taken with it. And he steals it later on. So he keeps Luba up here in his mind. Anyway, he goes back to New Guinea again, again to set himself up. And there he goes on a rampage. It's later reported by a really credible son police roundsman that he's becomes quite infamous in Rabaul. He's supposedly involved in assaults on Papuan boys and girls. What do you mean by assaults, by the way? As in sexual assaults. Oh, my God. Violent assaults, yeah. He apparently attempts to strangle his employer, Mrs. Black. She's the one who, with her husband, runs the bakery where he works. He apparently plots to kill Mr. Black, so that he and a mate can take over the bakery business in Rabal because no one that there's only one bakery. 
It's hard to know exactly how much of this is true, but what is true is that he's deported from Papua New Guinea and he's to arrive back in Sydney. But he has to leave the country under the name of Fred Stevens because he's going to be met at Sydney Airport by poor old Phyllis. So he can't really turn up and say, oh, yeah, I'm also known as Arthur Graham. He has to go as Fred. Problem being, as Fred, he's wanted because back in 1946, there was a warrant for his arrest for stealing Pearl Jackson's ring. So when he arrives at Sydney Airport, he's arrested with Phyllis there. She must have been going, what's happening? I'm I'm pretty much sure he would have just said, oh, this is a big misunderstanding, etc., etc. He's bailed, but he has to face committal hearing for stealing Pearl Jackson's ring. And uh, guess who didn't turn up to the committal hearing? Pearl Jackson. The police had tried, 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 tried to find her And she was never heard from again. And supposedly, he was heard saying, they'll never find her. She'll never testify. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But in any event, he and uh, Phyllis went back to Blacktown and they made plans now. She was going to sell her house. She was going to marry him. They were going to go on a driving holiday. They were going to drive through the sort of southwest of New South Wales, down across into Victoria, tour around there for three months, then come back up to Sydney, and then they were going to go to Papua New Guinea because he told her that his visit, like, you know, while we know that he'd become completely infamous there with all of his, you know, violence and so on, uh, what he told her was he'd established a bakery in Rabaul and was about to uh, start another one. So he was really wealthy, but all of his money, he told her, was tied up in banks there, so he didn't have access to it. So what he wanted her to do was to sell the house. She said, yep, okay, I'll sell the house. And she said, I think it's only fair, though, that the children get half of the money. And he said, sure, that's a very good idea. They'll get their best return, though, if they invest it in my bakeries. So he His arranged original everything. romance scammer. Yes, oh, yeah. you're so right. Oh, my God. He- He arranged everything through his attorney, his solicitor, Abraham Brindley in Sydney. Abraham Brindley himself had been in the newspapers in the mid-40s, hugely uh, scandalous. Uh, He managed to beat the charges, but he also accused the lead detective, Detective Gordon Jack, of being completely corrupt and trying to fit him up. That was of note because Detective Gordon Jack is about to come into this story. So Lionel... And Phyllis sold the house. All the money went into trust with this solicitor, Abraham Brindley. But a few days later, Lionel came in with a letter supposedly authorising £850 be paid out to him so he could buy a panel van for their trip, which he did. And then he came back to the solicitor again with another letter supposedly signed by Phyllis uh, for another sort of nearly £800. So of the £1,650 that had come from the sale of the house, he'd taken out £1,600. Phyllis had no idea about this. She told her children the money was still in trust and she'd access it when they got to where they were going. Anyway, at the start of February, off they went. They went to Goulburn, Canberra, Cooma, and then by about the 12th of February, they were on the far south coast at Eden. And they were seen there camping uh, by various people. And in an incredible coincidence, Lionel was sitting on a bridge down there looking at a flooded river when Mr. and Mrs. Black, his former employers in Papua New Guinea, the bakers, drove past. They'd actually opened a bakery in Eden recently and she saw him there and was like, that's him. 
they were seen by numerous witnesses all over the place. And one of these witnesses had kept a diary for 25 years every single day, and she noted seeing these people near their campsite. Lionel and Phyllis had promised the children that they would write, that she would write, and she wrote on the 19th of February saying, we're having a great time, he's so good at camping, I'm super happy, etc. And that she signed it Darby and Joan. So Darby and Joan's the old sort of colloquialism for, you know, an old couple who are sort of, you know, rambling around together. Super happy. Super and happy. Just, yeah, yeah. yeah. Two days later, Darby turned up at Ringwood at his parents' family's home, yeah. minus Joan. He mm. didn't mention Phyllis at all. He unloaded the panel van, all the stuff, all the camping stuff, was stuck into the garage. Like he hadn't seen his sister Florence and his brother-in-law and former criminal accomplice Fred since he'd been acquitted on those murder charges in 1945. So it was completely out of the blue. He didn't seem stressed. He said to Florence and Fred, how about we do some road trips? So they did. Now, while he'd been tripping around with Phyllis before she disappeared, he'd been writing to Luba, as in... Oh, the Brisbane girl. The Brisbane girl. And he'd been signing these letters Arthur Graham, and he'd been saying to her that he knew her and he wanted to see her. Now, she's like 18 years old. She has a one-and-a-half-year-old child, and she's pregnant. She's also recently married. She's in an unhappy marriage. Uh, She's, you know, a very vulnerable woman, young woman. She's getting these letters from this guy. She's got no idea who this man is, but he won't let up. He sends her a telegram, all this sort of stuff. Eventually, she responds, and he says, I want to come and see you. Can I call you? She says, okay. So he calls, and he kind of sweet-talks her into saying, you know, when I see you, I'll explain everything. And she says, okay. So he's got a green light to come and visit her. So on his road trip with his brother-in-law and his sister, they go all the way up to Brisbane. He meets Luba. They um, talk and he says to her, I first met you, first saw you five years ago and I fell in love with you. And your mother said to me, wait five years. If you still love her, come back then. Oh, that's so gross. So he's just making up this lie based on what he's learnt from the letters Norman and Jr. stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's so horrible. And using her dead mother against her, and yeah, oh. and she she obviously can't check with her mum because her no. mum's dead, and she also might think, well, this is what my mother wanted just before she died. So he says, "Can I see you again?" And she says, "Yes." So the next day he comes and sees her. They go off, and they have sex. And she said, "He says, will you marry me? Will you come away with me?'" And she says, "I I, I don't know. I I'm I'm not sure." And he says, look, I've got to go back to Melbourne for two weeks, but I'll come back for you on this date. And she says, okay. So he drives his brother-in-law, his sister, back to Melbourne. He comes back up through Sydney, stops in at his lawyer's place. And by this stage, Phyllis's kids are wondering, where is mum? It's been two months since they've heard from her. It's mid-April. And they've contacted the solicitor, and he's arranged this meeting with Lionel. Lionel's there, and he tells Norman... Your mother's in Adelaide. She's at the Gresham Hotel there. We're having a fine time. We've gotten married. Everything's cool. I'm just in Sydney on business. I've got to get back. See you later. Norman calls the Gresham Hotel and they say, no, there's no one here by that name, no Phyllis, and you know, no derivatives thereof, and asks Lionel about this as well. And Lionel says, oh, she's probably going to stay with friends at Port Pirie. And then he disappears again. So the kids are kind of like, well, They're kind of, I guess they want to believe their mum's all right, and he's obviously quite convincing. He goes back to Brisbane, hooks up with Luba, takes her off from her husband and her baby. By this time, the 
child. She's lost the child she was carrying. Oh, um, God. So they go for a week on a driving tour around sort of northern and then southern western New South Wales, staying in hotels and motels as husband and wife. You know, he says to her, I want you to marry me. He gives her a ring. He gives her a three-strand uh, pearl necklace, both of which belong to Phyllis. Uh, and then they get to Sydney. He goes to visit his solicitor. When he comes out of his solicitor's office, she's been waiting in the car and she says, I miss my boy too much. Can you please take me back home? And he does. He actually takes her back as far as Grafton at least and puts her on the train. That's a miracle. I thought he was going to kill her for sure. She gives him back the pearl necklace oh, and, yeah. and the, the wedding band. And uh, she goes back to Brisbane where her husband very soon afterwards divorces her. She loses custody of the child who's put up for adoption. Oh, so, you know, it kind of ruined her life anyway. God. While he's in Grafton, he stops in to see an old mate called Eric Ridgway. And Eric, during the period he was living with Phyllis, actually did painting for Phyllis. And he will later claim that Lionel had confided in him his plan to murder Phyllis after he got the house into his name. Um, so he will later claim that. Anyway, Lionel then comes back to Sydney and he kind of realises, I mean, the kids are asking questions now. It's probably, you know, time to to do a big runner. So he goes back to Melbourne. He sells the panel van. He says to his brother and his sister-in-law, I'm going to Perth. And off he goes. So by the uh, 11th of May, he's in Perth. Phyllis is still not officially missing and the police are not looking for her. One of the first things he does in Perth is place a personal ad Man seeks woman view matrimony, and he meets. Oh my yep, god! He meets a woman called Jean Cheatham, who is just actually estranged from her husband, who's a grazier. On the first meeting, he proposes marriage, like an hour into it. She's like, "Whoa, steady on!" But she's still willing to still to keep seeing him, so she does. Like three days after that, he chats up a nineteen-year-old girl who's working as a waitress. And they go for a walk. He walks her home to the boarding house she's staying at. He asks her if she'll marry him. She says, that's silly. I don't even know your name. He says, my name's Arthur Graham. Can I see you again? Next time they see each other, he asks again, will you marry me? They keep dating. He uh, meets her mother. Her mother's really taken with him and basically gives permission for for the marriage to go ahead. And they set a date. He gives her a three diamond engagement ring or shows it to her again one that belonged to phyllis she doesn't like it particularly so he's going to get the stones reset but he gives her the three strand pearl necklace then he has to actually go off to a country town to work he writes to her etc etc now in early june back in sydney phyllis's son and daughter have finally got the police to take notice and detective gordon jack who's been the enemy of Abraham Brindley, the solicitor, is assigned the case. And he and Fred Cray, who's then an upcoming detective and later is one of the most corrupt police to ever walk the earth in Australia, are on this case. And over the next six weeks, undercover, completely off the books, posing as guys just on a camping trip, they go following the trail of evidence that we've heard. So from Abraham Brindley's the solicitor, then they go to Goulburn, then Canberra, then Cooma, then the South Coast, then to his family's place in Ringwood, where his 
sister says, yes, he came here. He didn't mention any Phyllis. He was going to see this girl, Luba. Here's her address, etc. She shows him her diary as well, which you know proves the dates and all the stuff that he's stashed in their garage. So the cops then go into Melbourne to the guy who he sold the panel van to, then back to Sydney, then to Brisbane to interview Luba, then back to Sydney, then to Adelaide, finally to Perth. So they cover 10,000 miles in the space of six weeks undercover, piecing it all together, particularly the chronology. While he's been in uh, this country town up on the north of Perth, he's actually written to his brother-in-law saying, you know, I've got my life sorted out. You know, I don't need to worry about anything anymore. Um, and he's given an indication of which town he's in. Now, the police have by this stage interviewed the brother-in-law and the sister, and I'm pretty much saying that the brother-in-law and the sister now know exactly what sort of man Lionel Charles Thomas is because they could have picked up a phone and called him or they could have sent a telegram and said, clear out, but they didn't. So the police go to this country town where he is, and he's gone by this stage. But they find people who've known him recently, and he said he's going to get married, and his name is Arthur Graham. Now, in WA at this time, notices of marriages had to be posted outside the registry office in Perth. So right there in black and white is Arthur Graham to marry Dorothy Truslove, Saturday, 22nd of July at this church. So they go to Dorothy Truslove and say, hey, where's your fiancé? They don't identify themselves as detectives. Oh, she says, oh, he's staying at this Crystal Hotel in town. So on Friday, the night of Friday, the 21st of July, 1950, they're waiting in his room when he returns. And he returns with Jean Cheatham, the woman he met through the personals ad. So oh he's going to. Oh, my God. He, he's going to have sex with her the night before he gets married to this woman. Now, they arrest him. And he's actually got a book <laughs> that's called What to Do at Your Wedding in the room. In the room, there's also a picture of him at Katoomba. There's a picture of Luba. There's various items that belong to Phyllis and so on. Jean is actually allowed to leave. She's not implicated at all. He says, oh, look, you know, Phyllis is alive and well. She'll turn up. No problems at all. And they take him in for questioning. He tells his story that, you know, he met her in Adelaide uh, in early May. She knew about his criminal past. And once her kids also knew, she then left him. Uh, and he hasn't seen her since, but she's obviously fine. And, you know, he says that they were tripping around in the intervening three months. Of course, the police know this is not true because they've traced the chronology of who he was with, where and when. So he's arrested, he's charged, and he's extradited to Sydney to, to face trial, where, again, his legal defense team will claim that his statement to the police was completely fabricated. So, again, it'll be his defense's word, against his word. And again, the statement is ruled admissible. This time, however, they've got like 43 witnesses. I think the transcript of the committal hearing alone goes to 150,000 words. It goes over 15 days. He's ordered to stand trial. This time, there's no hung jury. There's no retrial. The jury retires for less than an hour and he's found guilty of the murder of Phyllis, even though her body has never been found and he won't say where it is. Now, the thing is, His statement to the police in Perth was that he, in a rage, shot her in the chest and then threw her off that bridge, weighted down. Now, he he claimed it was, you know, he, he shouldn't have done it. She was a wonderful woman. They didn't get on so well. She'd started nagging him and he'd just, you know, done his lolly and shot her. 
So I guess, you know, he might have been angling in that statement for manslaughter, maybe, but he completely recanted that statement, said it would, was completely fabricated, that the shorthand notes had been made up, he hadn't signed anything, etc. And so the, the police testified that he'd said to them, well, I think I've got a pretty good chance because you're never going to find her now. And they never did. But it was enough for the jury to convict. And at this time in New South Wales, that was an automatic death sentence. Oh, wow. My God, of course. Then he appealed. Once the appeal was denied, then it would be up to the executive to decide whether he would hang or not. But before that decision came down, now he had no further recourse to legal action. The police could now reveal to the press all of his criminal past, convicted and alleged. So now the newspaper stories were all about his conviction for the pepper robbery, the fact that he'd stood trial for attempted murder on that, the fact that he'd stood trial three times for murder, the Melbourne murder of the Carnegie Station Master, and had been acquitted. And then there were the allegations about what he'd done in Rabaul, et cetera, et cetera, and the fact that he'd stolen this ring from Pearl Jackson, who'd never been seen again. There was also the allegation that there was another woman in Rabaul he'd been involved with who'd also disappeared. Now, the big, the big headline was, though, the police could finally reveal that he had been their number one suspect in the Yandera Paycar bombing. They'd just never been able to prove it against him. All I can think about is all of the people from the families, the widows, the children of those men killed in that bombing, Phyllis, Pearl, you know, like these are the moments when people get so angry with our legal system and all of that when you go, you've put me in harm's way. You have put all of us in harm's way, letting this guy walk the earth when you've known the kind of person that he is. Even the guy who got shot in the groin, I'm thinking, what happened to him? He might have been disabled for his life or something. Absolutely, and traumatised for sure. Detective Gordon Jack, he his life was also ruined. He, uh, just like days after the arrest was made, went into hospital and was in hospital for almost a year with exhaustion, etc. Became pneumonia, all related to the exhaustion of this, you know, extended manhunt. He went back to work. The first thing he did, or wanted, he said he was going to do, this is uh, September of 1951, was go out to Long Bay to see Lionel Charles Thomas again to ask him to do the decent thing and say where the body was. But he didn't get to do that because Lionel Charles Thomas hanged himself in his cell. He left a note saying he was innocent. In the note, he said that he uh, couldn't handle the fact that he wasn't allowed to do baking in the, in the jail, and uh, that was the end of him. Gordon Jack was the only person, I think, who was present at the cremation when he was you know, given a pauper's cremation. Uh, certainly no one else from his, his family or his friends or anyone was there to see him out of the world, except for, you know, the cop who'd pursued him across literally most of Australia. But it was also obviously very charming. I've just noticed that on your Facebook page you've got a mugshot, right? And arrest yep. some arrest pictures there. And he's got a really smug look on his face. He does. And, you know, he looks like as you're talking about him, I've been looking at this photo of him a lot. He's got a grin. He's got a smarmy grin on his face and he looks like a bloke who's gotten away with a lot. Now, the question that remains, did he do the Yandera Paycar bombing? And it's, you know, it's not very often in these cases, you know, you end up basically with a lot of questions. But in this case, I could say definitively what happened, whether he was responsible or not. So he changed his name or he went by Frederick Arthur Stevens, his brother-in-law's name. 
and that was the name he enlisted under when he left Pentridge in July of 1941. So those files are available, and I got them digitized. And military files are very, very detailed in where people are, when, and where. So he was in training in July of 1941. In October, he was marched out, which means moved from the 3rd Military District, which is Victoria, to the 7th Military District, which is the Northern Territory. So Lionel Charles Thomas was in Darwin in mid-November 1941. His next entry in his military file is January of 1942. That's because he committed a minor offence. So the question was, could he have been in Sydney on the 8th of December 1941? Now, theoretically, you could certainly get from Darwin to Sydney and back in that period, but you couldn't do that as a soldier, and you certainly couldn't do that when Australia was at war. There's no way he would have been able to leave his camp in Darwin without being reported as absent without leave. And even if he could do that, there would have been military checkpoints. There was you no know, rationing in terms of petrol and that sort of thing. To get from Darwin to Sydney in late 1941 would have been a train or car journey of at least, I would think, a week in both directions. And he would also then have had to, you know, case out the whole rail car thing and then, you know, manage to get back after the explosion and so on and so forth. I just think, you know, that's just not possible. So he might have done a lot of bad, bad things, but the Yandera pay car ambush, killing three men, was not one of them. So who knows, you know, I don't, I don't think they'll, unless someone finds a diary from their grandfather or great-grandfather confessing to the crime, I think the uh, Yandera pay car will remain unsolved. What a bombshell. And speaking of bombshells, would you believe there are actually more crimes and misdemeanours of Lionel Charles Thomas that went under the radar because of his incredible capacity to commit them on the same days as major international historical events. I'm not kidding. You can hear all about it on Michael Adams' podcast, Forgotten Australia. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you to our guest, Michael Adams. We'll be back next week. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian true crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.